So good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to uh, Cancer Center Grand Rounds. Um, uh, I want to go through sort of our um, usual um, challenges around uh, uh, introductions in just a second, but first I want to warmly welcome uh, Dr. Sandra Wong, who is um, the chairman of the uh, Department of Surgery, our new chairman of the Department of Surgery, and has graciously agreed to um, give grand rounds. Sandra has a um, significant and storied history in cancer research. Um, she received her um, uh, undergraduate degree at Berkeley and subsequently an MD degree um, and was a member of Alpha Omega Alpha and Northwestern and um, completed also a master's degree in clinical trials design and subsequently did her cancer uh, surgical fellowship at um, Sloan Kettering and comes to us from the University of Michigan where she um, was a um, chaired professor and uh, a um, uh, member of the chief of surgeries group there. I don't remember the exact title. Um, she has uh, a significant um, body of literature that she's contributed um, to um, cancer science uh, and has been recognized with a number of awards and uh, invitations to speak nationally um, uh, about that. She's mentored quite a number of people and um, has greater than a hundred uh, peer-reviewed um, uh, um, publications uh, in the medical literature. Uh, I've looked through those for themes that uh, I know would be of interest to us, and um, there's really a substantive body of uh, work in the area of sarcomas and disparities, and uh, what she's going to talk about today, namely um, value and uh, hope associated with cancer outcomes. As many of you know, cancer outcomes is a really challenging area for us now as we're being asked to um, justify many of the things that we do and we want to know about what the value of those things are and one of the important ways of measuring value is to know something about the outcomes and so I'm very excited to hear um, Sandra what you're going to share with us today. Um, uh, I have a number of announcements that uh, this is an interesting one, Sandra. I don't think you're aware of this, but you have no financial interests. Um, actually, I think it should read no financial interests in something that you're going to present today or something like that. But um, in any case, uh, we get the message and that uh, Dr. Wong reports that she doesn't intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of products or devices and attests that she's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. The last thing, um, in addition to welcoming folks from our regional sites who will uh, watch this streamed, um, I want to remind all of you that the uh, computer program that uh, provides CME for these uh, meetings uh, has some sort of a glitch, and so you can't text in this week your attendance, but rather you have to sign some sheets that are outside the door so that we can record it for you. And so uh, without further ado, I will introduce to you my new colleague and uh, friend, Sandra Wong. Well, good afternoon, and um, thank you, Mark, for um, such a nice introduction. And um, I want to just say how pleased I am to be here at Dartmouth. I've been here a little bit more than three months now, and I have to say that um, being able to be somewhere where there was a, an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center was really important to me. Um, I, I think that a lot of my identity is wrapped around um, being an oncologist, and so I really appreciate um, the opportunity to, to be here and talk with you today. Um, I, as Mark said, um, don't actually um, have um, too much by the way of disclosure, but I will say that there are certain disclaimers that I should make you aware of, and um, it's not necessarily to go over my CV with you so much as to um, actually highlight um, maybe perceived conflicts that I might have because of organizations and groups that I've been a part of, but I do think that the particular ones that I put on here actually inform some of the content of today's talk. 
Um, I've had um, uh, been and lucky to have research funding. Most of my funded research has to do with treatment intensity and costs. I won't necessarily focus on that today, but obviously if we think about value, costs have to come into the equation. Um, what I, I'd like to focus on, um, however, is about measurement and evaluation. And so um, to wrap the theme of measurement and evaluation around um, clinical outcomes, and specifically talk about what um, components are of a good quality measure, and then to really consider how measurement and evaluation um, work together to improve cancer care. And I'll give you some um, examples of that. So first, some definitions. And measurement, I think, fairly is defined as the determination of attributes or dimensions. And most of the time, pretty standard scales are used. So if you think about the tail of the tape and do a little bit of comparison um, and maybe a little bit of contrasting to evaluation, evaluation is really a process that leads to judgment and actually requires a defined criteria of quality or whatever else that you're trying to evaluate. Um, and in many ways, it does depend on the former, which is reliable measurement. My younger sister is an educator, and she'll always, um, whenever we talk about this, um, she always reminds me that it's the same in schools because we do a lot of testing or measuring, but the actual evaluation of students is based on more than just the test itself. So um, something to um, consider as we talk about measurement. And um, I'm not sure that Lord Kelvin, you know, hundreds of years ago actually said it in this manner, but I think the thought is correct is that if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And you'll remember that the units of absolute temperature are attributed to Lord Kelvin. Um, so uh, maybe he knew something about it. Uh, and I think that we do a lot of measuring. I think in 2016, measurement has become part of the drinking water. It's in everything that we do in healthcare. Um, uh, even at a, a lower patient level and then at bigger health systems level, we measure everything, and it truly is in the drinking water. So much so that I think that it, instead of drinking from a glass, it feels like we're drinking from a fire hose. There's just a lot of data out there. And... Um, When we, when we think about a lot of data, I always think about big data. And as oncologists, we're always inundated with a lot of data and the, and the talk about big data. And I think certainly it's pretty exciting to think about what data could mean for precision medicine um, or whatever term you'd like to ascribe to that. However, I think that for a lot of what we do in quality, it doesn't matter that you have a, you know, a, a, a zillion terabytes of data. I think sometimes we're grappling with an absence of data or very little data. So on this scheme of things where you're looking at sort of like floppy disks all the way up to mega servers, I sometimes feel like in the quality world we're still kind of back where the floppy disks are because sometimes we really work in the absence of, of high quality data. Um, be that as it may, even with all the data available to us, I think sometimes uh, we have to remember um, what Einstein told us, which is that not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. So the recollection that while big data will actually, um, I think, in the next couple of years take us to great places, that for some of the stuff that we do kind of on an everyday basis for our patients um, isn't necessarily wrapped up in, in doing every statistical um, or mechanical machine-like way of analyzing data. And sometimes it's just a little bit more simple than that. So why measure? And I think that the kind of easy way to look at it is that we measure so that we can improve care. And um, kind of from my perspective, the very short history of quality measurement wraps around Ernest Codman. He was a surgeon in Boston um, and at the turn of the century um, started developing what is now known as end results cards. He basically kept track of his patients. And we wouldn't find this at all earth shattering today, but back then it really was. And in fact, it was pretty controversial. He kept track of his patients, and then he started keeping track of other people's patients. And you can imagine how that went over. And in many ways, um, what the work that he did was probably the forerunner of what we now know today as M&M conferences or morbidity and mortality conferences. And I think back then, that really wasn't very well accepted. Um, and um, he actually got let go from his position, and he ended up starting his own hospital. And a lot of the work that he did um, is, tr is sometimes what people think make up the current Joint Commission and the actual standards and the, the things that we um, measure um, in order to assure
measure quality. And I'd say many of you may remember when a lot of quality measurement or process measurement was being done, there was a lot of resistance to it. People didn't want to get measured. There was a lot of fear involved in, in measurement. And I think today, um, and, and largely um, improving over the last couple of years, there's really not an issue of whether or not to measure. Um, there's less resistance to measuring. I think we do a really good job with collecting data. We actually have great technology um, with which to collect data now. It isn't so much manual abstraction. A lot of the data can be directly dumped from electronic medical records and other sources. And as we've learned to be better about analyzing data, there certainly is increased transparency about data and actually what we do with data in reporting it. I think very importantly um, over the last couple of years has been a great recognition that this is really important that providers be involved in how the data are collected and analyzed and ultimately used. So um, more history, and I think that because I spent so many years thinking about quality and thinking about measurement, um, not just from a research perspective, but from an, an actual clinical perspective doing kind of quality at the local level, I've learned a couple of things. And so I'll use the things that I've learned to kind of frame um, some of the examples that I'll give you about um, a measurement and evaluation of quality. So um, there's probably nobody in here that doesn't um, uh, know what the Hawthorne effect is. And um, the brief history on that is that this was done at an electrical um, factory called Hawthorne Works outside of Chicago, and this was in the 1930s. And the people who ran the factory wanted to do an experiment. They wanted to see if people, shown here in this picture, uh, would do better work if there was more light or if there was less light. And as you can imagine, the workers were worried about this. And so guess what? They did better work when there was light, and they did better work when there wasn't light. And so that's the, the kind of underlying premise of the Hawthorne effect is that if you measure it, people will just do better. And I would argue that that's actually not such a bad thing. And a lot of the work that I do has to do with guidelines development. And I would argue that um, it's okay that if people feel like they're being looked at or measured that they do better. I don't have a huge problem with that. And so um, working together with the Society of Surgical Oncology and ASCO, um, we developed some joint guidelines um, for melanoma care. And the two basic things that came out of it um, because of the state of the evidence was that central node biopsy should be performed for tumors that are greater than or equal to one millimeter in thickness. And that if there's a positive sentinel node, that a completion lymph node dissection should be done. Um, this was highly based in, in um, literature and in the scientific um, data, and in many ways um, didn't kind of come up with, with too much controversy, except that people said to me, why do we need guidelines like this? Um, this is all pretty standard practice. Um, when we shouldn't spend a lot of time and energy developing guidelines when, in fact, we all know that those are the things that we should do. And in fact, I said, well, you think that, but there's actually huge gaps in practice. And so that led me to think that it wasn't necessarily so much about the Hawthorne effect so much as standing up and being counted. I think that a lot of times we forget that what we do on a daily basis doesn't necessarily represent what happens across the country. And that what happens at academic medical centers or centers where there is a strong cancer program doesn't reflect what happens across the country. And so um, I said, as we were developing these guidelines and hearing all sorts of criticisms about it, I said what we need to do, excuse me, I'm having some difficulty advancing the slides here, so let me just go back on. There you go. So I said, um, why don't we actually collect some data around it and demonstrate to people why um, these guidelines are actually important to consider, even though everybody is telling me that it's already standard practice. So we made um, a partnership with the National Cancer Database. And um, the National um, Cancer Database, or the NCDB, is actually a project of the um, Commission on Cancer, which is a program of the American College of Surgeons. There are about 1,500. Um, hospitals or cancer programs that are accredited by the Commission on Cancer, and um, they are mandated to report data to the NCDB. And as a result of that, about 70% of the incident cases in the United States are actually reported and found in the NCDB. And um, what happens to this data? Well, the data actually get used to um, inform hospital benchmark reports. And then more recently, um, a large part because of work of a few people, a few of us at the, at the um, COC, that really believe that this data should be used for research. And so um, there was a big push to allow researchers to get this data. And so um, we pushed to get these data to help inform why um, these guidelines were actually important. So um, 
Actually, the Norris Cotton Cancer Center isn't a COC accredited program, so I'll give you a little structure here of what this looks like. So it is a, a program of the American College of Surgeons, and the quality integration program, which is circled in red, is actually the arm of the COC that actually uses data and transforms data to actually improve care. Um, my disclaimer is that I actually chair the scientific um, review subcommittee, and when I wanted to do this project, I was told to go across the aisle and talk to my colleague who was working in quality measurement so that we could actually not just analyze the data, but actually um, develop some quality measures around the data um, in support of the guidelines and in support of higher quality care. So um, just very briefly, the process at the COC in terms of developing these quality measures is to actually first identify a quality gap. So actually use the data to identify a gap in practice. And then to actually test for validity and feasibility with the data. So are the, are the data we have available actually usable so that we can actually evaluate these quality measures? And the COC's had a, actually a really long history of collaborating with clinical experts and professional societies. So this was right up their alley. And um, it took about two years to kind of get all this through and get people to approve it and whatnot. And um, in spring of 2015, we actually approved five new melanoma quality measures. And right now, they're working on the programming to collect these data and report it back to the sites. So it was a long time coming, but I'm pretty excited about that. And the measures that we worked on uh, will be reported on this rapid quality reporting system. Almost 60 percent of the 1,500 hospitals have this mechanism where it's a platform where it real time data can be looked at. So instead of waiting a year for the annual report or waiting every quarter for the report, um, clinicians at any given COC hospital that have this reporting system can log in and kind of see how they're doing. So there's immediate case ascertainment. And so what that means is that for any of these quality measures, you can actually look up to see how an individual surgeon or the hospital is actually doing. So it actually gives pretty live time feedback and it allows for conversations at the cancer committee level to think about um, things that need some improvement because of gaps in care um, based on quality measures. So um, at the COC, there's actually three different types of quality measures. There's accountability measures, and these are the ones that are really steeped in high-quality evidence, and it really needs to be very high-level evidence. And the goal with a lot of these accountability measures is to push them forward to the National Quality Forum and get them approved. And sometimes when that happens, they actually go up to CMS so that there's actually penalties or rewards associated with meeting those quality measures. There are also quality improvement measures, which we collect and um, feedback to hospitals and cancer program so that they can monitor and guide their own QI efforts locally. And then there are these surveillance um, quality measures, which are actually not truly quality measures, but just a way to capture data around a certain point so that um, monitoring of um, practice patterns can be done. So mainly for quality measures, it's a focus on accountability or quality improvement, largely based on the state of the evidence. So based on those guidelines that were put together by the SSO and ASCO, um, we put together five measures. The first measure is around sentinel lymph node biopsy. And um, for those of you who may not be familiar, what a sentinel lymph node biopsy does is it allows for a surgeon to detect the one or two lymph nodes in a lymph node basin that might contain disease and would demonstrate that the rest of the lymph node basin is at risk. And so um, the first measure was um, to look at the use of sentinel lymph node biopsy. It's a considered appropriate for melanomas that are one to four millimeters thick, so this intermediate thickness group. Um, we think that the um, involvement of lymph nodes, positive lymph nodes in this group is somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 22 percent, depending on the series that you look at. You can imagine that there's a linear correlation between the thickness of the tumor and the risk of nodal metastases. And so if you think about very thin melanomas, there's a potential for overuse of this procedure. And um, we decided not to touch the 0 0.76 through 1 millimeter tumors because it's pretty darn controversial and there's probably a little bit more to it than just looking at depth. There's other tumor characteristics that feed into that decision. But we do think that if it's less than 0 0.75, that the risk of having a, a positive lymph node is exceedingly low and probably doesn't bear the risk of doing the procedure procedure, um, the risk or the cost of doing the procedure. So there was concern for overuse at the, at the thinner um, melanoma levels. So that was the first measure. And um, there are certain caveats. We know that um, just having this quality measure doesn't actually account for the quality of the sentinel lymph node biopsy. How well a surgeon actually does it probably um, determines identification rate of the node itself and the false negative um, rate of the um, node when examined by the pathologist. And it certainly doesn't account for whether a patient actually got referred to a surgeon. And it certainly doesn't um, account for 
if a surgeon actually decides not to do the procedure because the patient's 105 years old or because the patient couldn't possibly tolerate a surgical operation. All those caveats being said, it reasonably could be captured in NCDB data and was felt to be a good measure. So um, the way we looked at it was we actually used data from 2011 to 2012. We used the appropriate ICD-9 diagnoses um, and actually got about 50,000 patients after all of the, the various exclusions that we did. And we focused on a reasonable age range to um, 18 to 80. So remember, people were telling me that these guidelines were silly because everybody was already meeting the standard of care. But in fact, the data actually demonstrated that for the thinner melanomas, almost 18% of patients were going through the sentinel lymph node biopsy procedure. So kind of an 18% um, uh, rate of overuse. And then for the really appropriate indications for sentinel lymph node biopsy, only about 84% of patients were getting it done. So um, quite a few um, gaps in terms of patients who probably would have realized some benefit from the staging procedure. Um, when we look at that, um, when we go forward and look at the second measure, so remember um, if a patient has a positive sentinel node, the thinking is that a completion node dissection should be done because the sampling demonstrated involvement of a node and the rest of the nodal basin is at risk. And um, there are certain questions around this. There's great equipoise in terms of whether or not that actually helps. Um, here's the deal, though. There are two randomized controlled trials that were being done to compare the completion lymph node dissection with observation. The first one's the MSLT2. That was opened here, and um, internationally that was closed to accrual last fall. So you can imagine if that trial was just closed to accrual that we won't see results for years. A group in Germany actually did a similar trial looking at a randomization between completion node dissection and observation for patients with positive nodes. Those results were reported at ASCO last year. Um, the data looked pretty good and basically demonstrated no difference, um, but the data haven't yet been published, and it's unclear if there's still some data safety and monitoring issues associated with that. Um, but in the meantime, I think a lot of people are practicing ahead of practice. That was seen with the ACASOG Z11 trial in breast cancer, which was sort of the same question in terms of axillary lymph node dissection. So, but again, remember, this is practicing way ahead of, of um, the evidence because these data are actually older than um, the actual um, completion of accrual to MSLT2, which was that trial. So we looked at the data to see how we were actually doing. And you can see that looking at older data, so data from tw um, 2004 to 2005, um, using the NCDB, that only 50% of those patients that had a positive sentinel node went on to get a completion lymph node dissection. And um, despite guidelines and discussions, and editorials and whatnot, that um, completion rate only went up to about 60% over the ensuing next several years. And I would say with kind of the DCOG results that were being reported and with the completion of MSLT2, even without results that a lot of people are practicing ahead of practice, and we're not likely to see this number budge despite all the evidence, despite the equipoise, and despite the guidelines. So I actually think it's really important. People were telling me that these guidelines weren't necessary, and yet we're not seeing that people are actually practicing um, to that quality measure. So now, now if you're going to go ahead and do the completion lymph node dissection, shouldn't there be some consideration for the quality of the lymph node dissection? And so um, the question was, how do we determine the adequacy of a completion lymph node dissection? Now, admittedly, there aren't a lot of data for this, and so this isn't really an accountability measure. This is really more of a QI measure. And um, for cervical lymph node dissection or um, nodal dissections in the neck, um, based on a lot of kind of expert polling and um, data from the literature, we felt that 15 was about the right number. For axillary lymph node dissections, at least 10, and for inguinal nodes, at least 5. Now, many of you in the audience are probably saying, well, those are really, really low numbers. But again, let me show you what the gap here is. Um, I should make some mention that um, we know that the number of counts um, don't actually account for the anatomic extent of dissection. There's really no way to do that except for recording um, or taking pictures of everybody's lymph node dissection. That's not necessarily going to happen even in 2016. And that these actually represent a minimum number. And so um, really should expect kind of more in the neighborhood of two or three dozen at least for an axillary lymph node dissection as an example. And it's important to include that initial sentinel lymph node biopsy result in the count. Um, so 
how are we doing? Here are the data. You can see the first two lines are based on U.S. data sets. So the first um, row is the NCDB data that we were just talking about, and the second row is based on SEER data. And you can see that the proportion of patients in those two U.S. data um, sets that actually have over 15 nodes is far shy of 30 percent. You can see some comparators in Italy and in, Mel and in Australia um, at the Melanoma Institute. And you can see that the mean and median number of nodes at those other um, institutions or uh, multi-institution um, counts are much higher. So the point here is that it can be done, but we just fall far shy of that. And this same pattern is repeated in um, ALND, where you can see that the proportion of patients with greater than 10 nodes is pretty low in NCDB data and in SEER data. Um, impressively, though, um, it has gotten better with time. You can see that it went from about 27% um, in the early part of the 2000s to over 60% um, in the 2011 and 2012 data. So some improvement, but still not as good as what we're seeing in Italy and in, in Australia, where the number of counts or the number of nodes has been higher than that for a long time. And um, I won't spend too much time walking you through these same data, but for ILND or the inguinal lymph node dissections, it's very much the same numbers. Um, the proportion of patients that actually have greater than five nodes is pretty low, a little bit better over time, but far worse than what you would see in Italy or in Australia. So um, when we talk about these quality measures and think about benchmarking and reporting, there's always a lot of questions. And I think that there's a, a lot of things that we still need to work out. So um, how do you exclude patients who decide not to have it done as a patient preference? How do we account for all of those things? And should it be, yes, you were over 10 or no, you were under 10? Or should it be, well, you were at 9 or you were at 8 versus you were at 3 or 4. And so those are, are difficult things when reporting. And should it be 100% of cases over 10 or if you're greater than 90% over 10, should you count for meeting that quality measure at a hospital or cancer program level? So there's a lot of little things that still need to get resolved. Um, I personally think that you just report all of that and you let the program decide what they want to do in terms of trying to, trying to raise those numbers. It obviously requires some good conversations with the pathologists and pathology techs and, and um, with the surgeons about how to get better harvests. So um, the attribution is actually really important. Sometimes um, we think that these should be attributed to each individual surgeon, and sometimes it should be a hospital program. So you can imagine if it's, an, it's a decision that's made by the surgeon that it probably wouldn't be inappropriate to attribute the um, attainment of a quality measure to that particular surgeon. I think sometimes we suffer from really no, low numbers, and so doing it at a cancer program level probably gets um, beyond the problem of, of small sample size. But the ones that include more than one member of the team, such as the role of the pathologist in actually ascertaining the number of nodes, that probably needs to be a program level or a hospital level measure. And I don't think too many people would quibble with, with that. Actually, I gave this talk at a national meeting one time, and um, after the meeting, there was a, I don't know, coffee or something in the hall. And um, one of the attendees in the session came up to me, and he said, while I was in your session, I texted my pathologist, and I told him that he needed to go back to the specimen I did the other day and find me two more nodes. And uh, I'll tell you, this guy was really interesting. He, like a week later, he sent me an email, and he said, the pathologist found me four more. And he was so excited, and um, I think he went and um, kind of told everybody at his hospital about it. So you may think that's like a little small win and, and very kind of like a cute story. But it's actually, I think that's how quality improvement works at a, at a very local level. So I thought that was kind of an interesting um, uh, win from a kind of a talk at a meeting. Okay, so I've spent a lot of time talking about measurement and the things that can be done, but I think that one thing that I've really learned is that measurement alone is not enough. And um, there's a lot more to it than just collecting the data. The data actually have to be shared, and the data have to be discussed, and there actually have to be mechanisms that can be used to um, action on the data and make improvements. And um, it's an election year, so I feel like I can make the attribution to all politics is local. Um, but I really do believe that that's the case. And um, I think that it seems very simple, and many of you are very well versed on um, how to um, work quality improvement projects. But it seemed pretty simple. You measure, you share the data, you think about best practices, and you share that with each other, and then you remeasure to make sure that you're making process progress. 
And before I came here, I worked at the University of Michigan. And the state of Michigan, through some generous funding from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, put together a Michigan Surgical Quality Collaborative. So nearly all of the hospitals in Michigan became a part of this collaborative. Now, having a pair um, actually fund the program is helpful, um, and, but it was really a great um, collaborative measure. The meetings were held quarterly, and a lot of surgeons would attend, surgeons who were surgeon leaders in quality at their own institutions. Um, what I thought was really great about it is that, the, that it was really well-structured to do quality improvement, understanding that this was about um, learning from each other and um, not necessarily doing it on your own. And I think what helped was that even though it was throughout the state that it was small enough to be nimble so that people actually got to know each other and got to work together. And there was a commitment at that group level to um, be innovative and to think about ways to actually improve care. Um, there are a lot of national quality initiatives and national quality improvements, and a lot of them have gone to doing these statewide or regional type of collaborations. That's nothing new to people here at Dartmouth who've been doing it for such a long time in terms of cardiac surgery and other things. But um, when this rolled out um, in Michigan, it actually was a breath of fresh air in terms of how we uh, were able to um, improve quality. And it was a great way to have some scholarly productivity. We had a group of fellows who were so interested in this and um, got to work on these projects and um, share some of their work with you. One of my fellows interested in surgical oncology wanted to look at pancreatectomy. And you can imagine that not all of the 60 hospitals in Michigan did pancreas operations. So we looked at the 19 or so in the state that did and actually just compared results time over time. So the early phase, 2008 to 2010, and then 2011 to 2013, and looked at complication rates and mortality rates at the hospitals. And we stratified by volume, and you can see um, darker colored bars indicate lower volume hospitals, and as the bars get lighter, you get the higher um, volume hospitals. And you can appreciate that there is some volume effect to um, both morbidity and mortality. But you can also appreciate that over time, that there was a flattening of those differences. And um, we thought, well, maybe it's because people are actually f feeling like they're being measured, and so they're paying attention and doing a better job. <laughs> and um, we looked at it and, from um, a lot of um, different aspects. Well, maybe it's because people are that was more than an echo. Um, and so we just broke it down by medical complications and surgical complications. And you can see kind of um, time period over time period that there were some improvements. However, we were sort of criticized for this, and you can imagine why. Um, the thought was, well, it's just kind of improvement over time. Everybody was getting better. People just got to be better surgeons. There was better patient selection, et cetera. And that a lot of the data that we were collecting and feeding back to people weren't actually really specific to pancreas surgery. They were kind of generalizable to all types of operations. So we said, great, maybe if we actually record data on things that are specific to pancreas operations, maybe it'll get even better. Morbidity will drop and mortality will drop even more. So as a result of that, the MSQC um, committed to more resources to collect the data that actually mattered for, um, very specific for pancreas operations. At around the same time, with more attention being paid to kind of case-specific measures, one of my colleagues, Samantha Hendren and I, put together um, the colorectal surgeons in the state. She's a colorectal surgeon. I was along for the ride. And she did such great work um, essentially pulling every single surgeon in the state of Michigan who did an appreciable volume of colon and rectal cases together to share their results and think about ways to make the care better. There was tremendous buy-in. Um, we offered lunch. We thought we would, like, you know, pay people gas to come to this meeting. Turned out we didn't really have to. People wanted to be a part of this. And um, so we started a pilot project, and another one of our fellows wrote this all up. And um, many of you who take care of these patients probably appreciate that for rectal cancer, a lot of this is about making sure that there aren't local recurrences. Having a local recurrence of rectal cancer is really terrible. Um, bulky disease, a lot of pain, a lot of symptoms. Um, but the other side of it is the quality of life associated with having sphincter preservation. You can imagine how um, wonderful it is to be able to preserve the sphincter and have bowel control as opposed to having a stoma. And not every patient has this option, so a lot of that depends on how high the tumor is from the anal verge. So I won't get into too much of the nitty-gritty details with the operation itself, but you can see here what we did is we broke up the hospitals that had um, appreciable 
um, volumes into terciles. And what we did was we looked at, and you can see the top row of data are tumors that are actually pretty high. So really no doubt that you should be able to do a sphincter-preserving procedure. And you can see that by and large, oh, that into terciles. And what we did was we looked at, and you can see the top row of data are tumors that are actually pretty high. So really no I'm not touching anything. Um, and um, you, can, you can see the middle row are the tumors that get to be a little bit lower, but you can still see that even across most of the hospitals that most patients are getting the sphincter preservation procedures. It's when you get a little lower, where the operations get a little bit more technically tricky, that you see a, a much bigger difference in terms of hospitals that actually provide that type of operation and do it well, as opposed to hospitals that don't. And um, once you see the data, I think people recognize that maybe um, some changes need to happen in terms of their evaluation of patients and who's doing those operations. And that was certainly the case. And then I had another fellow who was really interested in liver surgery. And so he wanted to use the same cohort of um, interested um, surgeons to um, figure out why it was that so many um, patients with liver metastases weren't getting an operation. And you can imagine that is a very surgeon-centric approach. We know that most of the improvements in survival with metastatic colorectal cancer are largely due to systemic treatments. On the other hand, um, based on a lot of my fellow's attendance at Tumor Board, was the, the thought that maybe a lot of patients who were actually eligible for liver resection weren't getting referred. So it spurred the survey, and again, very surgeon-centered. You can see how this worked out. But what it did was it really engaged a lot of the surgeons across the state. And when we talked to the state society, um, the state um, heme and hematology and oncology society, there was a lot of buy-in. So we did a postal survey to all of the medical oncologists in Michigan. And um, with the direct hope of figuring out what the triggers were for surgical referral. And we did the study in early 2014. We had a 46% response rate. I actually think it was much better than that. If you actually exclude oncologists who didn't actually treat any kind of GI tumors, um, you can imagine that the response rate, because the denominator goes down, the response rate would have been much higher. So we sent out scenarios, and um, won't bore you with all of the, the things that we asked, but if you, if you just read really quickly, you can see that scenario one is a pretty straightforward case. Reasonably long disease-free interval, um, good performance status of the patient, solitary um, met that looked like it was easily resectable. And then going all the way down to the, the sixth scenario, where it was a pretty elderly um, person with a um, pretty... Um, short um, disease-free interval and a lot of liver metastases. And so we basically went through a lot of scenarios and, and collected a lot of data about beliefs and, and preferences for treatment of colorectal liver metastases. And um, what you see here probably doesn't surprise you if you really think about it. For the, the ones where it was pretty straightforward, probably should refer, you can see that most of the surgeons we surveyed, or most of the oncologists we surveyed would refer. And you can see with the ones that were pretty complicated, extra hepatic disease, et cetera, that they, they wouldn't. But there's the stuff kind of in the middle where it was questionable, and you can see that those would be the targets. And so the surgeons in the state love this survey, and I've had surgeons from other states ask if they can survey their oncologists as well. Part of it's an education um, mission. But um, what it did was it really engaged people, and it really got people excited about how we can um, work together to improve care. Okay, another lesson I've learned from doing a lot of measurements is that sometimes we just measure the wrong thing, and that if you had to do it again, you would restructure how you're measuring. And um, the illustrative example for this is around Merkel cell carcinoma. Um, many of you probably haven't ever seen this in your career. Um, there are really a pretty aggressive rare neuroendocrine tumors of the skin. Um, on pathology, sometimes they, they look like small cell cancers of the lung. Um, there's a great tendency for nodal metastases, so they're pretty nodal trophic, and they're also very radiosensitive. So they're treated pretty similarly to melanoma, but because of the tumor biology is so different, um, it's important to remember that it's a completely different um, type of disease. Um, the overall five-year survival rates are pretty poor. You can see that. And very interestingly, this is actually a disease of the elderly. The mean age at diagnosis is 74. And um, there's a growing incidence. You can see that it's triple the incidence in about 15 years' time. And so um, when I was at Michigan, I was really fortunate to be a part of a um, kind of a skin cancer group that was really interested in kind of doing interesting things as a group. We had a fun group. Um, we had good leadership. And there was a lot of interest in developing our Merkel cell 
population. So there's about 1,500 cases of Merkel cell a year, probably growing. Um, in the 10 years since the kind of Merkel cell program started at the University of Michigan, um, I'd say pretty close to 600 patients seen. So um, I was, what I used to joke, the highest volume Merkel cell um, carcinoma surgeon in the country because we just grew this practice. And as a result of that, we learned a lot about the disease. And it was really great to kind of see my colleagues um, rise to um, a lot of kind of you know, local and, and regional and even national fame because of their knowledge of Merkel cell carcinoma. So one of the dermatologists, most surgeons that I worked with, actually um, ended up chairing the AJCC um, staging panel for Merkel cell carcinoma. Um, before 2010, there actually wasn't a staging system. There were a lot of kind of one-offs. People thought they should stage Merkel cell a certain way. And then after 2010, um, the first AJCC consensus staging system was put in place. And this is what it looked like. So um, I just took this off the NCCN website, but I, I put in the red box um, how the N category was determined. And you can see that for CN0 versus PN0, it is largely determined by whether or not the patient actually had their lymph nodes examined. So this was staging because of a surgical procedure. Not staging because of natural biology or not staging because of pathology, but whether or not an operation was done. I always had a lot of problems with this. It just seemed like the wrong way to stage somebody. And yet, this was the staging system that came about in 2010. And you can see what it does to the staging system. So essentially, if you're somebody who underwent a sentinel lymph node procedure, you're either a stage 1A or you're a stage 2A, as opposed to a 1B or a 2B because somebody decided to do an operation on you. So this never really sat well with our group. And when we had the opportunity to really think about it, we said, well, we'd like to change the staging system. And um, because Chris Bajakian actually was chairing that staging system, we had the opportunity to do so. However, you can imagine that it's not just as easy as saying, well, this is the way we think the staging system should be. So we worked really, um, as, a, as a team, we worked together with the AJCC committee. And using NCDB data, we actually ran some analyses that demonstrated that the way we proposed was actually um, very rational and quite prognostic. So let me walk you through some of the data that we just um, that we put together. We just submitted this paper, so um, I think I can still share this with you. So we found um, over 14,000 cases of Merkel cell carcinoma, and this is the um, kind of classic figure one, the exclusion criteria. And at the end, we had over 9,000 cases that we could use for analysis. They, these were cases that had complete staging information and had reasonable follow-up to allow us to do the prognostication. And um, you can see from the top graph that if you just compare local versus nodal disease versus distant disease, that the curves actually separate out pretty nicely, no surprise. Remember, this is a pretty locally aggressive tumor. So if you just look at the T category, you can actually also see that T1, um, T2, and T2, T3, and T4, actually um, the lines split pretty nicely as well. So then we said, okay, here's what we propose. For the N category, we think that there should be separate staging. There should be clinical staging so the patient didn't actually undergo a procedure. There's no pathologic confirmation. And then a separate staging for the, for the ones that are pathologically staged. So if there was a biopsy or a completion node dissection and histologic confirmation of nodal disease. As it turns out, this was the way that AJCC wanted to move. They wanted to be able to strictly classify those that had pathologic information and those that did not. So this was in keeping with what the eighth edition of the AJCC will look like. And I expect that this will, that all of this will come out in the fall and, and um, the changes that we made have actually been approved. So let me walk through some of that. So um, the figures on the left-hand side of the screen are the ones that I've already shown you. The, on the right-hand side, at the very top, you'll see the clinical stage. So these are patients that didn't actually have any histologic confirmation of their nodal status. And you can see that, based on stage, the curves still split pretty nicely, so pretty prognostic, even with just clinical staging. Now with pathologic staging, and I blew it up here so you could see it a little bit better, you can actually see how there actually is a nice split of the curves based on staging. Now there's a little bit of crossing. You'll see the green and the yellow lines. There's a little bit of crossing between 3A and 2B. And that is largely because the actual primary tumor actually plays quite a role too. So this is one of those tumors where it's not a stepwise TNM. The T actually makes a big difference and actually plays a role in survival. So using these data, 
and um, demonstrating that the way that we were you know, proposing that the Merkel cell gets staged, there actually was good prognostication. And as many of you know, the AJCC is extremely interested in having their stage categories or their stage groupings fit with prognosis. That's one of the reasons why we stage patients, after all. And um, one other thing that we found, and um, I have to say, I think my colleague fought pretty hard to get this changed, is clinically what we were noticing is that some patients that had an unknown primary, in other words, they would come in with big bulky lymph nodes, but you couldn't find the primary tumor anywhere. That, so despite walking in with huge lymph nodes as a way of, of being diagnosed, those patients actually did really well. So we'd have these patients come in, they would come in from everywhere because other physicians had given up on them. Oh, you have these huge lymph nodes, a Merkel cell, you're 90, there's nothing we can do. And we would do completion node dissections on these patients. They would get radiation therapy, and they kept coming back for their follow-ups. It was fantastic. We'd see them a year later, two years later. And we sort of figured out that the unknown primary patients, actually, there was something about them, that, and they did really well. And so what we did is we said, okay, let's split up the patients who presented with nodal disease with a known primary and then those without a known primary. And as you can see here, again, looking at the red line and the green line, that sure enough, despite having bulky nodal disease in both of those populations, if you actually couldn't find a primary, those patients did a lot better. So if you actually just look at the green survival curve compared to the red one, same amount of bulky nodal disease, but the mere fact that there was regression or something about the primary tumor made their prognosis that much better. And you can actually see that the green line, the survival is actually slightly better than somebody who didn't have any like appreciable nodal disease, so clinically occult nodal disease. So we felt like this was really important. I can tell you we presented this data. Nobody believed it. And we showed them again and again, and then um, we found some clinical experts, other people in other countries who'd done an appreciable um, volume of Merkel cell, and finally we were able to um, convince that this was truly the way to do it. So um, here's what this will look like. And again, I think that um, this will come out in the fall. I think the eighth edition is due out in the fall. Um, you can see that there's going to be two separate categories, so clinical staging and then pathologic staging. And for the clinical staging, rather than saying um, macroscopic disease, which is a term that many of us grapple with, kind of determining what a macro met actually means, it's going to be termed clinically detectable nodal metastases. And then for the pathologic staging, it'll be termed more along the lines of clinically occult disease. And there'll be a special designation. You can see there, there's PN1A with the SN, the sentinel node. And that's because, similar to the story that we were sort of seeing with the positive sentinel nodes in melanoma and not, not getting the completion node dissection, what was happening is that a lot of these patients were getting a sentinel node biopsy, and then instead of getting the completion node dissection, because Merkel cell carcinoma is so radiosensitive, they were getting radiation therapy with pretty good results. But it's important to note that the nodes are still in situ, and so um, we fought for the designation of the SN, and that'll go in. So I actually think that the staging system I'm pretty excited about, because I actually think it gives so much more information than what it had before, where it was really kind of confounding by whether or not a patient had a procedure done. So I talked about the SN designation, but really importantly, because of the designation of the unknown primary tumor, we moved that from a 3B designation to a 3A designation for the 8th edition. So again, changes made because we learned how to measure better and realizing that the previous way that we were measuring was actually quite wrong. And I don't need to tell a cancer audience really why we think staging is so important, but it really gets back to the um, whole point of measurement and evaluation being wrapped up together. because. Without proper staging, it's really hard to manage patients. Um, it's really hard to guide our treatment decisions. It's really hard to give prognosis to patients without actually having some um, guidance for their stage. And as all of you can appreciate, staging helps us communicate about patients. We can say that patient has a stage 3B or that patient has a stage 2B tumor. And it actually, because in this era, we're so interested in stratifying for clinical trials that staging is a perfect way to do that. So I'm pretty excited about some of these changes. And um, we sort of talked about big data and small data. I think really for many things, this is Goldilocks and the Three Bears. What you really need is the right size data. Um, and so it's about getting it just right. So I'll leave you with a couple of points um, that uh, measurement is a key component of evaluating cancer care, and that I really do think that quality measures and measuring quality can be used to um, inform our ongoing work in quality improvement, and that this is a continuous process, that sometimes you don't get it right the first time, and you measure, and you learn, and then you remeasure. So with that, I thank you for your attention. Here's your activity code that you don't need, and uh, I'd be happy to take questions. I think there's a few minutes for that.
Thanks, Sandra, for that um, wonderful overview and um, some fantastic examples. Um, yeah, I've got lots of questions. So do any of you have questions for Sandra? Constantine? So that was very impressed by Merkel cell movement. And you were able to get these thousands of rare tumors. As part of the book, did you have any basic scientists looking at the biology in addition to the stage? Yeah, I have to tell you, this Merkel cell work was so fun to do. We actually have um, two um, dermatologists who are basic scientists, and they did a lot of work with the Merkel cell polyomavirus. And so we were able to acquire specimens from all of these tumors, rare tumors. We acquired specimens, we banked them, and they've written quite a bit of work and will do and will continue to do that work. So it was just a great way to grow the careers of some of our young dermatologists. I mentored some of them. Um, I didn't do any of this on my own. It was so fun to be a part of that big team. But yeah, it was a great way to kind of link clinical science with, with translational science. Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, one would imagine that the tumors without a known primary are arising at some location other than the skin, <laughs> and they're neuroendocrine, and you can't find them. And so the fact that the biology would be different uh, is not surprising, but really interesting. I think that's, that's right. Um, Sandra, one thing that um, we struggle with so much in cancer, thinking about quality measures, is trying to understand the usefulness of process measures versus outcome measures. And in the first part of your talk, almost all of it was process measures. And um, we struggle so with outcome measures because they're generally not measured. You know, it's expensive, hard to find, and so forth. As you've thought more about this, um, how, how effective are these process measures in actually leading to differences in outcomes? That's such a good question and not an easy one, as, as you already know. Um, I'll, I'll give you... Um, I see some of my surgical colleagues in the eyes. I'll give you a surgical example and some of the ones that have been really beat up on in the surgical world. Um, one example is the use of antibiotics before an operation, and the other is the use of um, VTE prophylaxis. Great examples because they're easy to do. You know, give an antibiotic before you make an incision and give some VTE prophylaxis before you put the patient to sleep. Pretty easy to do. Uh, the problem with those measures is that they... They're, and they're good. They're, it's hard to dispute the fact that you should give patients antibiotics before you do an operation and that you should prophylax against a venothrombolic event. The problem is not, neither of those two processes actually were linked to outcomes. We saw, um, I did another study where we actually looked at really kind of high-quality hospitals um, and really low-quality hospitals by a number of different composite measures. And it turned out that the kind of lower quality hospitals had 100% compliance with those process measures, 100%. And that some of these higher quality hospitals mid-90s. Um, but it didn't actually lead to the differences that you wanted, which is lower mortality, improved outcomes in terms of things that matter, length of stay, readmission, things like that. And so part of the trick with these process measures is they actually have to be linkable to an outcome that you want. Sometimes we measure quality or we measure process measures because we can. They're pretty easy to do. Uh, we know some of them work. and We know hand washing reduces infection. Those things work. But it isn't necessarily clear that just giving antibiotics within an hour of an, of an incision actually make a difference. That's the one that surgeons get. And um, there was mass outrage on one of my committees because surgeons were getting dinged for giving the antibiotic an hour and two minutes before the incision. They were just getting in all sorts of trouble, and we were never able to, to reconcile that except to say that just give it 59 minutes or give it 50 minutes before the incision. Sure. So it's just linking process and outcomes, and sometimes it's not so clear. Um, still have a little bit more time. You know, one of the things I'm proudest of about our cancer center is that we um, we're very early into the sort of quality measurement and uh, you know, process improvement game. I think before any other location at DH, we established a uh, office for patient safety and quality improvement. And um, I love the concept that this has to be local because I feel strongly that um, you need people embedded in the day-to-day -day practice who are committed to that. and it, Early in the game, we um, established the first course here at DH that ultimately was taken up by the quality group, um, uh, and we put virtually 
I think all. We probably got to about 75-80% of people went through sort of a um, green belt uh, kind of experience and subsequently that has matured to where um, there are always many ongoing quality improvement projects and Joanne I see you here uh, who leads our um, sort of office for quality and safety within the cancer center and um, I'm just wondering um, what are sort of our greatest challenges around measurement that maybe we could ask Dr. Wong, you know, how to address some of those. I know one of the things that, and you know this, Joanne, because we talk about it a lot, it drives me nuts to see three years of sort of data that shows that nothing has changed. You know, we measure it, measure it, measure it, and it just doesn't budge. Um, and uh, um, it's, it's been exciting um, since Joanne has come to really see some of these measures that were absolutely recalcitrant to change, to actually now take a significant uh, leap, a significant evidence of improvement. And um, I, I'm just wondering around measurement, how if we, if we really measure the right things or what are the big challenges that we face? Well, I think any time when we're dealing with quality improvement, it's always a time factor. I think we have all have good intentions and everybody wants to work on quality improvement, but it's to isolate our time so we can really focus on what needs to be measured and how do you make that improvement. We work very closely with the Value Institute and we're transitioning a little bit with them from projects that tend to be longer, three or four months, five months sometimes, into we're starting to work with rapid process improvement workshops which are a little more condensed, a 40-hour like Kaizen events. We've got 40 hours, everybody involved. And for me, the biggest outcome of that is people stop thinking quality project where I'm going to look at one thing over the next three months and started thinking continual process improvement. So they started thinking every day then, that communication with people every day, what can I change today that's going to make a difference in what we're doing? Not that it has to necessarily be part of a big project, but it's people thinking that way every day. And so that was a, a, was a really good outcome. But again, it's trying to find that time and say, especially when we have a lot of pressure on productivity and, and, and you know, being busy all the time, is to say, okay, but I need to take a few hours out of your work week or out of your work day to really concentrate on this and change that mindset to, I'm thinking about this all the time when I'm doing my job. How can I improve it? How can I look for ways? Sandra, when you were doing this research in Michigan, did you find that it sort of trickled down to actual quality improvement um, in the sphere you were working with? Because we would learn about these things through reading national publications and that kind of thing. But when you do it um, locally at a, you know, a high level, I would say, I mean, we do a lot of quality improvement work, but I mean, we don't do research around process improvement. I would say. I mean, we have a lot of health services research, very high level, but I wouldn't call the rigor that I usually associate with research what we do in our quality improvement projects. Um, well, I, I, I really I applaud what you do because I actually think that what you do on a daily basis is really hard work. And um, I, even though it may not be research, so to speak, I think that what you've done is you've really built a culture around improvement. And I think it's more that than anything. Um, there certainly needs to be some evidence behind it, but I think it's really about culture and being able to have everybody get engaged and have some buy-in around it. And um, there are probably some ways that we could measure and, and um, think about that. Mm -hmm. um, and there certainly are scientific ways, as many of you are, are aware of, of um, around implementation and dissemination of best practices and about ways of doing it. But it is hard work. I thank you for doing all of it. I, I think that that's really what it is, is we think about it a lot on a national level. And for me, it was really rewarding to kind of work on it on a regional level. Um, remember that it always starts with one person, and it requires building a team, but it does start with one person. It starts with that kind of energy and building the culture around safety and about quality improvement processes being continual and not having it be, oh, this month is hand-washing month and next month we'll work on, you know, VTE or something like that. So it's really about the culture. I think it's really interesting because when we looked last summer when we did our stats, we had 100% of our people within the Cancer Institute who had some type of training in either white belt or yellow belt or green belt training. So everybody's speaking the same language. 
we're all looking for ways to improve. And I think the culture is very, very firmly established over the work of the last probably four years here. And I've only been here for a year, just over a year. And But I think it's really important to recognize that it was a journey and that everyone is firmly ensconced in that mindset now. It's not like, oh, we have to do quality improvement. It's like, yes, that's what we do. Okay, what's our next project? What's our next step? And I think that's a real tribute to the teamwork and the leadership from the Cancer Center to have developed it and um, really encouraged that type of culture. I think that's really important. I, I recognized that when I when I came through and looked. I think that it really is in the drinking water here, and, and so far ahead of, of so many other places that that I've been and, and seen. So, good. That's yeah. a good note to end up. <laughs> <laughs> Before you say anything else, right. so thank you very much. Sarah.